All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see all of you. And um, as you know, we're studying, uh, well, maybe you don't know this, but if you haven't been here for a while, we're studying the book of James. We had worked our way through Galatians, and we compared justification by faith in Galatians 3 and 4 with justification by works, as James calls it, in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Now we're looking at the book of James. I, I gave all of you a copy of this last week, and um, Glenn put it up on the on the sheet. So, Fred, I don't know, Fred, if you even have this. Will you no, I do. Okay. And this little pinwheel I put together, and this summarizes, I think, anyway, it's always been helpful for me, summarizes how to look at the book of James. James, at the center of the core of the book, is 14, verse 14, 26 of chapter 2. And that's what we, we've already developed that and talked about that and reconciled that. James does not tell us how to get justified. He doesn't tell us, the way we would put it today, how to get saved. He assumes that. What James is looking at is this question. What does the justified life look like? A life has experienced God's grace, has experienced, and is now the new identity is you're justified. You've been declared righteous. What does that look like? The Apostle Paul would talk about this as sanctification. James doesn't use that language. James doesn't use the language that Paul uses, but he's making the same assumptions that Paul makes. And so to be justified by faith is something he assumes. What he's looking at is, okay, you're justified. The works that result from that evidence your justification. How you live your life evidences your new identity. He understands this is a process. He understands this takes the rest of your life. But he breaks it, and that's how I've done it in this little pinwheel. It's a series of topics. Each one of them addresses that question, what does a justified life look like? And right out of the chute, we covered this last week, he deals with the matter of trials or testings, if you will. That God allows us, God, if you even want to use this this word, God puts us through trials to develop our character and deepen our faith. That's how we grow. So he has the audacity to say in verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The supernatural response of the justified person is an attitude of gratitude when it comes to the difficulties of life, the trials the testings of life. And that word that is in verse 3, testing, is a wonderful, it's Dr. Mion in Greek, it was used in metallurgical industry where you found a rock, a piece of ore, you put it under intense heat, and all the junk surfaced to the top. And what was left was the pure mineral, gold, silver, iron, whatever you were looking for. So that, that makes sense. It's hard it's difficult for us because we do not want to respond that way with joy. But James is saying that's how God grows us. Then in that second part, verses 5 through 8, I'm reviewing what we did last week because several of you weren't here. But in 5 through 8, what he does, he says, okay, if you need wisdom, wisdom in how to understand trials and how to respond to trials, ask of the Lord. And he's, he's, remember, James is the earliest book written in the, in the New Testament. It's written about 45, 46 A.D. It's the first, first book in terms of time, chronology. And James is a Jew. He's head of the church in Jerusalem. He had the brother of Jesus, had trusted Jesus after the resurrection. 
but he's using the language of a Jewish person. He writes the letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Those who are scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world. And so when he talks like this in verse 5, he's using Old Testament language. He's using the language of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And so that, that makes so much sense to us. Joy when we encounter trial. If you need wisdom in how to understand and respond, ask the Lord. He'll give it to you. But when you ask, ask in faith. Then the third part, I'm still in the first part of the, of the book. The, first, the third part is verses 9, 10, and 11. I call this the democracy of testing. And what I mean by that is that testing, testing the trials of faith that God uses to grow our faith applies to everyone. Those who are wealthy have material goods and those who are poor who lack those. And so that's what James says. So if you look at verse 9, let the lowly brother, I'm reading for the ESV translation, might be a little different than yours. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now this is language that he's using, this is language comparable to the Proverbs of the Old Testament. This is language that's similar to the Proverbs. But what is he saying here? That to understand the nature of trials, both poor and rich will respond the same. Their circumstances do not determine their response. Their faith, which produces joy, should define the response. Because those who are poor, the lowly brother, the language there, that's to me, that's not a great translation. But the lowly brothers, those of humble circumstances, those who are poor, those who do not have material wealth, what are they to boast in? Where are they to find their focus in their exaltation? What in the world does that mean? Their position in Christ. They're a new creature in Christ. They have a promised position in the coming kingdom. If you use the stuff we studied, for example, in the book of Galatians, you are a joint heir with Christ. You will rule and reign with Christ. So what does that mean? Your position, your identity, and your future should determine how you're going to respond to the trials and testings of life. What, and this is always the way the Old Testament puts it. Life is a journey. It's the destination point is eternity. And so what we're going through now in this journey of life is temporary. That's permanent. So you exalt in your position. You exalt in your identity. Not necessarily your circumstances. Now, when you put it that way, you oh, I understand that. That makes sense to me. And the, the, quite frankly, men, the majority of people to whom James was writing would fit those in verse 9. And so he's saying, listen, the, the tendency you have is to have, be hopeless, have no 
know, energy and excitement about the future because of your very difficult circumstances, lacking material possessions, lacking the certainty that material possessions bring. Keep your focus on what God's promised, your exaltation, resurrected body, join air with Christ, the hope you have in the return of Christ, all that. That's your exaltation. In contrast is the rich. And that's the right way to translate. It's the materially rich person. What's their tendency? Well, he says the rich should rejoice in his humiliation. Well, what does that mean? It's an attitude. Because when you came to Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, your wealth or your material position had nothing to do with that. You didn't earn it, merit it, deserve it. You came to a point where you realized because of your sin, you needed to put your faith in Christ. And so, therefore, you took that humble position. Jesus puts it this way when he was having a discussion with his disciples. You come to me with childlike faith. You come to me like a child. And that humble, dependent, surrendering, if you will, faith is your humiliation. Do you follow You follow that? Do you understand what he's saying? Because he says, you do know this. And this is, this is language that's in the proverb. Because you know, like a flower, you're going to pass away. Scorching heat. So it is with a man's, a man's wealth. His, his, his wealth, his material, it fades away. It goes. You've heard this, I'm sure, many times. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, where, where people are taking all their wealth. That, no. <laughs> Yeah, Joe put it this way. I came into the world with nothing. I will leave the world with nothing. All James is saying is the rich, those who materially have wealth, you have the tendency to put your trust in your wealth. No, you've learned. You've learned your attitude is focused on your humiliation. Because you know what these various word pictures, these, these figures of speech, like we're experiencing right now. The grass is starting to get ground. If you're not watering your grass in this heat, in this very dry weather, because, I mean, that's just the nature of it. And the flowers fall off and so on. James is saying that's what happens to material wealth. You know that. That's what James says. And so that's why all three of these paragraphs, two through four, five through eight, and nine through 11 fit together. Trials and testings are how God grows our faith. If you lack wisdom in understanding that, ask the Lord. And thirdly, make sure you understand to have the right attitude. Your wealth is of no help. God's not condemning wealth. James is not condemning wealth. That's not his point. You exalt in your humiliation. You came to Christ with nothing to receive his eternal blessings. That's what you exalt in. And so that's why I called it, there's a democracy in testing. Both the rich and the poor will experience this method, these instruments God uses to grow his people. Okay? Okay. Your silence means you understand it, or there's absolutely no idea what I've been saying. But I think, I think it's not hard at all. But I want you to notice he closes this out. This, this meeting, this discussion about trials and testings and so on, how God grows our faith with a blessing. And it's in verse 12. Blessed 
is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Back to verse 2. Steadfast, the, the Greek word there is hupomeneo. Um, I know that doesn't mean anything, but it's often translated endures, perseveres, hangs in there. Blessed is the person. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast, who persevered, who endures under trial. Because you under you ask God for wisdom, he's given it to you. You understand your material state has nothing to do with how you're responding to your trial. Now, he gives a reason. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who loved him. Now, it's probably correct. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown, which is eternal life. It's appositional. I know that doesn't mean anything, but that's probably the best way to think about that. And so you, you start to understand, oh, in other words, and by the way, that little word crown there is Stephanos. It was the crown that was given in the Olympic Games. It was a crown made of olive leaves and other things too, but often olive leaves and it was placed on the, the, the victor in a particular wrestling match or race or whatever it was. It's not the diadem. The other Greek word is diadem. That's the crown of royalty. That's not the word here. So James is using a term that's used throughout the scriptures, now specifically the New Testament, the various crowns that we will receive. At the end of our journey, at the end of our race, at the end of life, when we go to be with the Lord, when we face eternity, the crown. And one of the crowns is the crown of eternal life. So it's a metaphor. It's something God has promised. There are five crowns mentioned in Scripture in the New Testament, I should say. This is one of them. And so, James, why does James do this? Because he helps us to remember something. Again, using the, the figure of speech of a journey. We're on a journey of life, but the end of the journey is eternity. And part of that is the crown of eternal life. We receive that gift of eternal life, which the Lord promised to those who love him who are in that intimate fellowship with him, in that intimate relationship, which begins when we put our faith in him. And so I mean, I love these 12 verses because James helps us to understand God's going to grow you through trials and testings. If you lack wisdom, ask the Lord. He'll help you to see that. And don't forget, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic position is. That's how God does it. It's always a blessing. Hang in there. Remain steadfast. Endure. Because you have the promise that God's made to you. And that's like Paul writes about this in Philippians 3.14. He says, I don't look back. I press on to the high calling, which is the crown, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's, you, you see that in Paul's writing. What kept Paul going? What enabled Paul to endure, to persevere? The promises that God had made to him. And he kept looking forward. He kept looking ahead. He kept looking toward the end. And when you see those triumphant words in Second Timothy, the last book Paul wrote, you see that. He's days from being ha having his head chopped off by Nero. But this isn't a guy who's despondent. This is a guy filled with hope. And the, the, the words he uses in Second Timothy indicate that. Men, I believe that these first 12 verses 
is an attitude about life that we learn. And I think we need to learn it over and over and over and over again. Because you and I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen this afternoon when we leave this building and go to whatever we do the rest of the day. We have no idea. But I know this. God's sovereignly, providentially in control of my life. And whatever happens is going to be part of what he wants for me. And everything he wants for me is for my good and for his glory. Do I live that 24-7? I'll give you my phone number of my wife. She'll answer that question for you. And the answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> That's how she'll answer the question. Because you and I are always growing in this. Intuitively and intellectually, we know it. We've been taught it. It's all through the Bible. But when we live it, does our knowledge impact our heart? Baptist minister talks about those key 18 inches between our head and our heart. And that's just a figure of speech. But that's we're growing in that area. We're growing in that area. I'm responding to things differently than I did 20 years ago, but I'm not always responding in a God-honoring way. And I know none of you have that trouble, but uh, so it's sort of an abstract idea to you. But there are some people who still, they wrestle with this because we don't, we don't like the trials and tests of our faith. We don't like those. I'm teaching, uh, in one of my other classes, I'm teaching the life of David, going through First and Second Samuel. And, when you study First Samuel particularly, that's what you see. God takes 13 years to grow David's faith, to develop David's character, and give him the leadership skills he needs to be the king. When David killed Goliath, he said, well, he's, now he's ready to be king. Well, maybe, but from God's perspective, David's not ready. And so God puts him through test after test after test after test after test until he's ready. Okay. Now, the second part of this, and still part one of this pinwheel, are temptations. Now, you'll see in verse 13, you see the verb tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. The Greek word that's translated tempt is the same Greek word that's translated trial. In verse 2, they're the same Greek word. But correctly, in verses 2 through 12, the focus is on the trials that God sends to test and grow our faith. To translate it temptation in this context, he makes it very clear, I am being tempted by God. No. So correctly, the editors translate it tempt, not trial. A trial is sourced in God. A temptation is not. Okay, let's make sure this is clear. What does the word tempt? Use it the verb. What does the verb to tempt mean? That's an intentional rhetorical question, so I can sip on my coffee. <laughs> Either here in the room or online. What does the verb tempt, to tempt mean? 
it can mean that. That can be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Entice. It's, okay, I know who said that. Entice. I like Entice. that. Entice. Enticement. It's an enticement to evil. Now, Satan is a master at that. You see it in Genesis 3 when, when he tempts Eve, as you remember. But entice. Now, one of the methods he uses in enticement is deceive. He deceives us. But that enticement, that luring to do something that's evil. And so James makes it very clear. Let no one say if he is tempted. That's not what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted. So what should you and I expect? We will be tempted. (laughs) Now, what is really fascinating here in this paragraph is James does not talk about Satan. He talks about us. And he uses the language of a fisherman. He uses the language of the fishing industry. And before we read it, I'll just tell you his point. We build and bait our own trap. And so James is focusing on us. He's not ignoring Satan. He's not ignoring the world. That's not his point. His his point is you take responsibility for this enticement to evil. Because you see, and this is very much developed in Paul, by Paul in the book of Romans, sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. You understand what I'm saying when I say it that? Sin is not just what we do. Sin is what we are. We're born sinners. When we experience the justification that comes by faith in Christ and his finished work, we're a new creature where we now have the capacity and power to not sin. Before we came to Christ, we could not not sin. Pardon the double negative there. So James is just saying, when we're tempted, make sure you don't automatically, as a default response, blame God, scapegoat God. Why do you think he gives us that counsel? Well, the Jews typically throughout, like like the Exodus and other places, it's always God is punishing them, and, and it's God's fault that they're in this position. They're, they're out of Egypt and all that sort of stuff. God, why are you doing this to us? We're your people. And I mean, on a, but it's also, isn't it just a human tendency? It's not my fault. Somebody else is to blame. And I mean, that, I mean, you've worked with children. Some of you raised your own kids. Yeah. You have brothers and sisters playing and starting into a fight. Almost always, what do they do? It's Jimmy's fault, not mine. I didn't do it. I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm totally innocent, yet you were at the center of what happened when you blew up the house. That's it. Using some exaggerated language. Yes, our natural natural tendency is to scapegoat. I didn't have anything. I'm completely innocent. So God, since I'm completely innocent, it must be your fault. And so we scapegoat God. Now, again, it's maybe a little bit exaggerated language here that James is doing, but the tendency of humans is to blame somebody else. 
And when you're talking about trials sourced in God for our spiritual growth, it's almost like he's saying the natural tendency will be for you to blame God when you're enticed to do that which is evil. And so James makes, he, he, he enters into a little bit of a theological discussion here. For God, and there's a gar of reason there, you could translate that, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There is nothing in God's character that is susceptible to evil. R.C. Sproul, in his wonderful book, The Holiness of God, puts it this way. At the core of God's being is absolute, pure holiness. And if at the core of God's being is absolute, pure holiness, God is untemptable. You can never entice God to do anything evil. Now, let me ask a question. It's actually a very legitimate question, but it might be perceived as a bunny trail, but I don't think it is. When Jesus Christ was on earth during his public ministry, was he tempted? Yeah, he was. Was he enticed to do evil? Absolutely. Yes. Remember, it's in a full account of it in Matthew 4, Satan. Jesus has been in the wilderness of Judea fasting for 40 days. He's at the low point of physical being. He's emaciated. A medical friend of mine says, when you go 40 days without food, your body is beginning to get close to shutting down certain functions. You're at a real low point. And that's when Satan attacks him. And three times, Jesus is tempted. It was a very penetrating temptations. Because he's a God-man, he's starved, he's hungry. See those rocks in the Judean wilderness, rocks are everywhere. Turn one of those into bread. Could Jesus have done that? Yeah. It would have been just a snap. He could have done it. But that would have meant he's acting independently of the Father. And he won't do that. He shall not tempt the Lord your God. Second, they're in a little different order in Luke's account, but the, the second one in Matthew is that that he takes he takes Jesus to the to the temple, and it's called the pinnacle. And it's on the the, the the southeast corner. It's very high, very steep. Jump off, and he quotes from Psalm ninety: "Your angels will take care of you, because God will never let His Son be killed." And he said, Jesus says. I'm not going to act independently of my father. And he finishes the quotation that's all night. That to act independently of the father is to act sinfully. I will not do that. And then thirdly, he takes him up to Mount Hermon, the highest point of 9,000 feet above sea level, and some, somehow, supernaturally, whatever, he shows Jesus all the kingdom. Hey, I'll give you all this. Your father promised this to you. It's in Psalm 110. It's in Psalm 2. Your father promised you. I'll give it to you. Now, Satan called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 4. He's the prince of power of the air, Jesus calls him. He's the Lord of this age. Did he have the authority to give that? In a sense, he did. What was the cost? Jesus would be over the end. Right? I mean, Christ already has that. 
Yes, but if, as he goes through the death, burial, and resurrection, he's then exalted to the right hand, and it will rule and reign in the coming kingdom. He's, as a sovereign, he's ruled, but in that in that millennial promised kingdom that's coming. And so Jesus is hearing Satan say, I can give you the same thing, but you don't have to go to the cross. He just said, there's only one requirement. Just bend the knee to me. One bow, that's all. Which is a horrendous thought. The son of God bowing to Satan, of course, he won't do that. But I'm saying is, Jesus, and this is what's so marvelous for you and me, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. So at the end of Hebrews chapter 2, at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, the author says, in all ways Jesus was like us, yet without sin. And so when we go to the Lord Jesus in prayer and we're in the intense, the intense pressure cooker of temptation, does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted? Yes, he does. So James is saying, in the core of his being, God is untemptable. And secondly, therefore, he tempts no one. God is never the source of temptation. He never tempts us, entices us to do something evil. So James, in a very short clause, has given us a marvel, marvelous theological premise. The character of God makes it impossible for you and me to blame God when we're in the cauldron of temptation. That's an important theological point. Now, what you would think he might do is launch into maybe talking a little bit about his brother Jesus when he was tempted. He doesn't do that. He might have talked a little bit about Satan and how Satan tempted Eve and Adam successfully. Because thousands of other examples could have used. But that's not what he does. The first word of verse 14 is what? But. Each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And in verse 14, James is using metaphors of the fishing industry. And, and that's how what they have done here, done that very well. But the, the whole idea of lure and entice is you build the trap and you bait the trap. That, that's what the fisherman does. Fisherman builds the trap for the fish and then baits the trap. He has nets or little boxes, depending on what he's fishing for, or whatever, and lobster and all those things. But bait. And what, what's James saying? We build and bait our own traps. <laughs> We're responsible. Our desires, the uh, one translation has it by his own lust. That's how one translation translates it. I, I do like the translation desire is better. Individual person, individual people, not ignoring Satan, not ignoring the world, but individual people building Patreon craft. That's how desperate we are for the need of God to deal with the reality of temptations in our lives. 
And then he switches in verse 15. He switches metaphors. He switches figures. And he switches to the birth metaphor. Then desire, how when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so in a very real sense, verse 14 and 15, well, I guess I could write this on the board. Maybe I will. What time is it? Ooh. Let me try to do this. In a sense, what James is doing here in, in verse 14 and 15 is very, very helpful. What James does here is he helps us to understand the evolution of sin. Now, when I say evolution, I don't mean biological evolution. I'm talking about evolution or the development. Where does it start? It starts with a thought. And then it becomes a desire. And then it produces an action. Look at his language. We build and bait our own traps, which produces the desire. That desire gives birth to the action. So if the evolution, if the evolution of sin is thought, desire, action, if you're wise, where do you deal with it? In our thoughts. We deal with it in what we're allowing into our mind, what we're visualizing, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're thinking about. All, all that is a part of that process is profound, and yet it's so simple. I might, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not because I teach number of classes, but we were studying the book of Job in one of my classes. And Job is defending himself, where he's trying to make sure that his three friends and others understand that he was a man of integrity. He said, I am, I am so committed to the righteousness that pleases God. I only take one look at a maiden. That's the word that's in the Hebrew. What does he mean? When it comes to a beautiful girl, I cannot avoid the first look but I can't avoid the second look. And I thought when I read that many years ago and then I reread it and studied it when I was teaching this material on Job, I thought, oh my goodness, that is so wise. It is impossible to avoid the first look at a woman who's beautiful, who's gorgeous, a fitness center, a bathing suit at the, the beach or swimming pool or wherever the context might be, but I can avoid that second look. Because the more you look and the more you stare, the more your mind focuses on that becoming a desire, which then yields to the action, so to speak. When you read Second Samuel chapter 11, that's exactly what happened to David. He was on the roof of his palace. His men are fighting up at Rabbah, which is in present-day Jordan. But anyway, and he's, at, he's at home. He's on the palace, and he looks across the valley. What does he see? This gorgeous woman of Bathsheba purifying herself after a menstrual cycle. What does he do? He stares. Hebrew word is he stares. 
And then he asked her to come. And you know the result of that. You could say the same thing about what causes us to envy, what causes us to have the have the 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 fruit of jealousy. It's what we do with our mind as we think and dwell. If we do not deal with our thought life, when it gets to the desire stage, it's not impossible, but it's far more difficult. So James is just helping us to understand something here. Got it? I know that's too convicting, isn't it? So we don't want to talk about it. All right. But, I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a helpful reminder. It's somebody else's fault, Steve. Don didn't buy a new car. I wouldn't want a new car. And he had to buy a new car since his fault. I want a new car. He should have kept driving that little truck, that's for goodness good. sake. Why would he yeah. have? <laughs> All right. Please. For a lot of people say, why did God hate me? Does God hate people like Hitler or something? Does God hate those people? Um, the way you're asking the question, uh, I'm going to put it. I'm going to answer it this way. Jesus says in John three sixteen, "God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son." The response of God to the sin-cursed nature of humanity is his son. He sent Jesus. And that's done out of love. So I guess a way to ask the question, use the illustration of Hitler. Did God love Adolf Hitler? The answer is probably yes, but he doesn't like what he does. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, in terms of his... Being a human being that God created, I mean, God created Adolf Hitler uh, when he was born and all that. I mean, it wasn't an accident. It catched God on his blind side. He missed it. No. So God loves Adolf Hitler, but he holds Adolf Hitler accountable for the dastardly things that he does. And he will answer to the Lord at the great white throne judgment. So God loves human beings, but he detests what they do if they are sinful and if they do not put their faith in his son, which is how the Lord deals with that, then they will face him in eternal judgment. That's how I'm answering your question. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you have a very specific person in mind or not, but... For someone to say, why does God hate me? The Bible would not really allow you to say that. God does not hate you. God loves you. The evidence for that is he sent Jesus. Okay? Well, then how do you get to hell? How does who get sent to hell? Is God sending people to hell? God does not send people to hell. That is what people choose. All of their lives, they have chosen to reject all of God's revelations. In creation, conscience is moral law in Jesus. And to reject all of those revelations of God, all of the opportunities of God's grace in your life, all of your life you have rejected God. So hell 
is your choice. Because hell, by definition, is a separation from God, eternal separation from God. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, which has nothing to do with marriage. He uses that for another figure of speech. But he says, God does not send people to hell. That's what they've chosen. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. Do you understand what he means by that? God doesn't send people to hell. That's what they've chosen. They've chosen all of their lives to be separate from the Lord, to reject all of his revelations. And so when they die, God is saying, that's what you've chosen. Eternity is the trajectory of what you've chosen in life. God does not contradict what you've chosen. You have chosen to live your life without him. You've rejected all of his grace. That's what you've chosen for all eternity. You follow what I'm saying? So, I mean, I'm being a little nitpicky there, but I don't like that idea. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it's biblical. God does not send people to hell. That's what they've chosen. All of their lives, they've chosen to reject the Lord and his grace. And God is just saying, this is what you've chosen. And as C.S. Lewis says in that book, God says, thy will be done. Do you follow that? That's right. That's right, Bill. I mean, it's the same thing. You've chosen, and I don't mean to be mean here or crass, but a person has chosen all of their life to reject the Lord. Why is he going to, in eternity, contradict that? He's just saying eternity is what you've chosen. And therefore, what you've chosen is what will be the trajectory for all eternity. The other side of that is, though, that in the Great Commission, God said to spread the word to the ends of the earth. So that by spreading the word to the ends of the earth, everybody's had the opportunity to um, experience and or become aware of chance for salvation, and if they continue to reject that, then they've made the choice to defy God to the end. Everybody everybody has an eternal destiny. But it's that railroad tracks, it's that focus on what you as a human being have chosen. But I appreciate you asking that question. Is there any other online or any other in the room here? I'm almost out of time. Let me do one more thing. Look at verse 16 and following. And I don't know if we'll get this done completely, but what he does, he, James, does, he goes back to the Lord now. He goes back to God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light with whom there's no variation nor shadow due to change. And of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James, what James does is he goes back to the question of the character of God, the role of God. Well, if God doesn't tempt, as he already stated in verse 13, if God does not tempt, well then, how do I talk about God? How, how do I think about God? And he gives this word, good. 
God is good. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. The word good is agathos. The word perfect is teleos. Those which are purposeful, those things which are purposeful, which are eternally important, significant, are sourced in God. God never, ever, ever gives an evil gift. He never, ever, ever gives a hurtful, harmful gift. And James uses that, it's a, it's a Hebrew phrase, the father of lights. But he adds something. With whom there is no variation of shadow or shadow due to change. There's a theological word associated with this. That theological word. is immutable. Now that's a big word. I want you to know it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to spell it correctly. It'll be on the quiz next week. But it's, it's, a, it's one of those theological terms you ought to get familiar with. It. God's immutable. What does that mean? He doesn't change. In Malachi 3, he says, I am Yahweh, I change not. God is not immutable. He doesn't change. He is consistent. In who he is, in his character, and what he does. Everything God does for you and me as his children is for our good and for his glory. That's the nature of God. But so James says, when you talk about the Lord, associate two words with his actions. Good and purposeful. The Greek word is teleon. It's better than perfect because the Greeks didn't have a word for perfect. I don't like when they translate it perfect because that's not really what it means. That it means it's complete. It, it's purposeful. God doesn't do things randomly. Everything he does is for our good and for a purpose that he has for us. Randomness is not part of how God acts toward his children. I'm a little frustrated. I, I don't, I, I've got to quit because I've got another class I've got to go teach. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start here again next week. I want to say a little more about that phrase, Father of Light, and a little more about immutable. I'll just pick up with that next week, okay? 17. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, as, are you guys online with me? You okay? We are. I'm gonna, I know we yep. got started a little late, but I'm going to have to quit here. So, if you're going to come back next week, we're going to pick this up. We're really going slowly through this, but this is very important material. And I hope it's it's a blessing to you as we study it together. Please let me pray here, and then i got to get everything together. Lord, thank you. It's been a little bit of a harried uh, class. We got started late. We weren't sure we were going to meet. I'm so grateful that they did schedules here. Just nobody knew it. <laughs> but I'm grateful that we were able to get to class, and thank you for our time together. Where this is very important, very powerful, very life-changing. And we make sure we have crystal clear clarity on the difference between a trial and a temptation. A trial is used by you to grow us and grow our faith. A temptation is never sourced in you. You never entice us to evil. And I want to complete some of this next week. But if that's true, then what is your character? How does it affect how we pray? How does it affect how we think about you? 
So, Lord, I ran out of time, but I pray that you'll help us to continue this thinking next week. Help these men to not only know the difference between a trial and temptation, but respond to you in faith, trusting, as it says so often in Scripture, these things are for our good and for your glory. Help us to be men who understand what you're doing, believe what you're doing, believe you're good, believe that you have our best interests always at heart, and we always have that goal of eternal life with you, to rule and reign with you, have the joy of eternity and a glorified body. That's what you promised. We're banking on that, Lord. We trust you in that. We believe that. That's what keeps us going. So bless these men as we go our separate ways. Take care of us. May we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.